so let's open in prayer. Let's pray for Mark and Shelley. Let's pray for ourselves. Let's pray for the missionaries, and then we'll get to the seminar soon. Father, thank you so much for Bob and Claudia. They're such good friends, and it's great doing ministry together. Rather than competing, we get to compliment. Father, we pray a blessing over this church. I drive by this church every Sunday in the way to mine, and me and my kids pray blessing over this church for your presence to be so strong, people to get saved, the kingdom to be advanced. This is a stronghold in Poway, and we are so thankful for it. Father, we pray for Mark and Shelley that they will have fun, that they will deliver and download uh, just years of experience and health to us. And Father, I pray for myself and my wife and everybody here that we would be humble, not be arrogant, and just uh, be trusting and get stuff that will help strengthen marriages. Nobody in this room wants to be a statistic except for uh, marriages that made it for the long haul. Come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, shouldn't Shelley be here? Well, I'm going to start by proving everything you said true. <laughs> They're going to say, wow, that guy might be the biggest loser I've ever seen in my life. It was a mercy marriage. Uh, he's rolling. It was a mercy marriage, and I'm willing to face that. My punishment, her punishment. Okay, we are going to be, I think, quite practical. But um, before we get practical, we've got to get somewhat theological. And I know you probably didn't come for this theological perspective, but I think it's really, really important that we understand the purpose of marriage. If, uh, if I handed you a hammer and I said, tell me about the purpose of this hammer, and you had never seen a nail, that hammer would do you absolutely no good. In fact, it might be a dangerous weapon. And if I gave you a nail and I showed you how to pound a nail with that hammer, you uh, would have some idea of how to use that hammer. But until I showed you two pieces of wood being fixed together by driving a nail through it, you really wouldn't understand how a hammer works or what it's for. And you really wouldn't get it until you figured out that that's how a home is built. Right? Okay, marriage is something like that. We have all these ideas in our mind about what marriage is for. And they're true in part, but they're not the essential purpose of marriage. And until we understand the essential purpose of marriage, we won't do it well. We need understanding to have, to have good practice. So that's what I want to start with. Marriage, what's the point? Marriage has several God-planned purposes, which are pretty obvious. Here's some of the obvious ones. In fact, let's have a little Q&A. What are some of the obvious purposes for marriage? <laughs> Sex. Who said that? <laughs> Well, then somebody from the Connection Church is absolutely right. What, 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 did, what did the Apostle Paul say on that issue? Better to be married than to burn with lust. So God gave us uh, sexual appetites and he gave us the uh, parameters in which they're to be uh, fulfilled. And marriage is that parameter. So that's one of them. Give me another one. <laughs> 
Somebody else said procreation. He said procreation and he said sex, but you said pro procreation before he said sex, but usually sex comes before procreation. So anyway, companionship. Look, it's, a, it's an answer to loneliness. It is not good that man or woman, woman be alone. That's clearly part of it. What are some more? I just get really practical. What are some more? Provision. Provision. Two can live cheaper than one. One doesn't. <laughs> That's a connection church person, people. I can tell the difference. I can sense it right away. How about this? To provide a stable and safe environment for the raising of children. All right. How about this one? To provide a lasting relationship where love can be given and received. And here's one you don't think about. To provide sexual fulfillment in an environment of uncritical acceptance where fear of failure does not accompany every sexual encounter. You didn't understand that, did you? Where there's not commitment, am I going to be a failure? Am I going to measure up to this person's expectations? Intimacy carries with it a fear of failure and a risk. In a committed relationship of one person to another, that fear tends to melt away. So there's a sense of unconditional love and acceptance which makes intimacy safe. So all of these purposes are genuine purposes of marriage, but they are not the foundational purpose of marriage. The foundational purpose of marriage has to do with the nature of God and the deepest purpose of human life. And when we can understand that and how that works, all of a sudden marriage takes on a really, really deep significance. As far as God is concerned, the purpose of a person's life is to know God personally, to enjoy him, and to make him known to the rest of the world. Does that make sense? In fact, there's one church's uh, um, motto, which is to know God and make him known. And if you know him, you'll enjoy him. And if you enjoy him, you'll want to make him known. That's the purpose of human life on earth. Another way of saying it would be that our purpose as humans on this life, on this earth, is to glorify God. Now, when we say glorify God, we always think or often think in terms of glorifying God is how you worship with your hands in the air. Glorifying God is shouting praise to him and speaking praise to him. Well, that's all true. But the essence of glorifying God is revealing him. The more accurately we can reveal him for what he's really like, the more he's glorified. Does that make sense? Our job as human beings is to reveal God to the whole world. Well, there's a problem in this, and that is that our God is invisible. And so revealing him to others isn't just a matter of saying, hi, I'd like you to meet the creator of the universe. He's absolutely amazing. Here he is. There's nothing there. He's a spirit. He's invisible. How do we illustrate or show God his nature, what he's really like to the world when he can't even be seen? Problem, right? John said this, 1 John 4, 12. 
No one has ever seen God. That's the problem. But if we love each other, God lives in us. Do you see the conditional nature of that comment? If we love one another, God lives in us. The corollary of that is if we don't love one another, God is not living in us. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Isn't it an amazing thing that God can suggest that there's a way that his love could be incomplete? How could God's love possibly be incomplete? But he's saying, until we're loving one another in a godly way with his love, there's something incomplete, unfulfilled, not fully expressed about his love to the world. But if we love each other, his love is made complete in us. In other words, when we love each other with the love of God flowing through us, we are revealing the essence of God to the world. Do you buy that? Okay, what human relationship is the most perfect expression of that kind of love in a relationship? It's marriage. And after that, it's family, right? And what's interesting is God in his essential nature isn't merely a marriage, two people loving each other uh, to the exclusion of all others for eternity. God's actually a family. Isn't that neat? God's three. But the closest we come in human relationships to showing that kind of perfect love, of devotion and exclusivity and faithfulness is in the institution of marriage. So marriage is kind of a make-it-or-break-it proposition for revealing God to the world. That's, that's a little heavy, isn't it? Like I thought it was just for good sex and making babies. And now I find out I have the responsibility in my marriage of illustrating God's love to the world. Big task. Big responsibility. But it's possible. It's really possible to have the kind of loving relationship, an unselfish relationship in a marriage, that causes people to believe that God really exists. I remember in our neighborhood, we've got a community pool, and every summer, a lot of the kids get over there, the young people, and there was this one girl, and um, she was in high school, and we always played cards over at the, at the pool. We'd just pick up a hearts game or whatever, and anybody in the neighborhood who wanted to sit down and play could play. And she would come and say, I want to play with you. I want to play with you. And, and, and week after week, we would have these card games, and she would find a way to be there and be part of it. And Shelly was often in those card games. And one time she said, how come you two love each other so much? And we didn't even think about that. We're, we're just... We're just being who we are in our, in our relationship. And she said, how come you love each other so much? And I said, why are you asking that? And she said, my parents don't love each other like that at all. She said, I didn't think it was possible for two people to love each other like that. And she said, I want that kind of marriage. And I said, 
that kind of marriage is a Christian marriage and it only happens when two people love the Lord more than they love each other. And we got a chance to talk to her about the Lord several times simply because she saw us being ourselves, loving each other. And listen, that sound, that's kind of self-promoting. Um, the truth of it is, for, for both Shelley and I, both of us, this is our second marriage. And both of our first marriages were complete disasters. I mean, complete heartache, brokenness, disasters. So what we're telling you today and tomorrow, it, it's, it's not that we did things perfectly. It's that we learned a heck of a lot. And we've got tire tracks on our backs. But uh, it's possible to have a really, really good marriage. Do you know that after my first marriage, my biggest fear was? I, I looked at my friend's marriages and I thought, wow. I felt like I was standing in the parking lot at Disneyland looking through the turnstiles and seeing people on the rides and going about visiting Disneyland and I felt in my heart I will never be able to go in there. My biggest fear was I don't think I don't know how to be a good husband. I'm not I don't think I can be a good husband. I think I'd just be a failure at it like I've been all along. It took quite a while to come to believe that I could actually be part of a successful marriage and have that happiness. I was a fear to be overcome. So I'm standing here today to tell you, you can have a successful and great marriage. So we start by understanding the purpose of it. God created marriage to illustrate or to reveal his quintessential nature. Quintessential means the absolute core thing that makes God, God. What, what, what's the core of God? God defines himself in three words in the Bible. Three words. He sums it all up and everyone in the world can get it. Whether you're a believer or not, if I give you this definition of God, you'll understand God. What is it? God is love. God, in his essence, boiled down to the core, one single thing that he is. He is love. And when we love with his love, one another, people see it. And it isn't just people that see it. We get to live in it. We get to enjoy the kind of acceptance, and the kind of faithfulness, the kind of devotion that God has for Jesus and Jesus has for his father. That's a good thing. But marriage, because God is love and we're illustrating God, Marriage is, by definition, an unselfish proposition, right? Love is always unselfish. You know that nice Corinthians passage? Love is dot, 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 dot. You might as well just say love is unselfish, and it catches all the rest. And God's love is perfectly unselfish. So look, just to be clear, we've got to get this out of the way. Your happiness is not the purpose for your marriage. Can we, just, can we just all take a breath? And you see, th this is the deal here. This is where the rubber meets the road. 
Your marriage is not about your happiness. If, if you're seeing your marriage as what I can get out of it and what's in it for me, and she completes me, or he completes me, or he makes me feel this, or, or she does this for me, or blah, blah, blah. You have missed the whole point of marriage. And because that foundation is wrong, the building you build on that foundation will be wrong. And no matter how hard you try, until you deal with that fundamental issue and get that straight, all the self-help books... And all the commu communicational principles and everything else are not going to make your marriage successful because you built it on a proposition that is not true. Do you understand? Let me illustrate this for you. My first marriage was, um, as I said, it was a 20-year relationship. When we went into it, I wasn't a Christian or I certainly wasn't living as a Christian. And... I became a Christian four years into the marriage, and I mean, I did a 180. It was, <laughs> it was just this incredibly selfish, manipulative, wallet-extracting, blood-sucking lawyer who turned around and went after God with all the passion in his heart. And he really thought, idealistically, I have God living in me, and his love is available to me. So if I love my wife with his love, it's going to change her and she's going to, she's, she's going to begin responding and she's going to become a happy person and have a fulfilled life with me. And I attempted to do that for um, 20 years. And in the end, when the end finally came, I, I, had, I had to take a sabbatical. My health was wrecked. I was in bed most days, all day long, um, I, just hit, I just hit the end. I wasn't, I wasn't capable of doing it anymore. My wife flat out hated me. <laughs> she even told me that. It was real interesting. That's not the point. Here's the point. That marriage came apart, and uh, someone came to me and said, okay, well, you know, now, now that that's over, you can, you can find a really good wife and you can have a great life. And I, I thought that was the Disneyland thing. Like, there's no chance for me to have a happy marriage. Others, yes, but me, no. And they said to me, look, you need to do this right. So, okay, well, what's right? They said, well, you need to make a list of the five things that you want in a wife. You get your list of five things, get that sorted out, and then you pray to God for that person, and then he brings you that person. The five things. I was only allowed to have five. You had all 20. So I did. I, I made my list, and I started to pray, and I prayed and prayed and prayed. And the first one on my list, and I, that this had to be the Holy Spirit because I'm not smart enough to stumble on this for myself. My number one thing was she has to love God more than she loves me. That's the only way this thing's going to work, is if she loves the Lord more than she loves me. And then I had another four. And I'm not going to talk about those. But when Shelly and I met, she was all five. She was so all five that for quite a while in our dating, I was positive I didn't deserve her, so I couldn't really imagine it working out. I thought, you know, God, God just wants me to have a utilitarian wife. 
someone that will do the job to be an effective pastor's wife, but, but there's no bells and whistles and there's nothing magic or special about it. It's just a get-by wife. That's what I thought, really. I did. And then she came along, and it was too good to be true. You, you know what I mean? Like she was everything I wanted on the list to 10 in each category. So it was hard to believe that, that she really loved me, and it was hard to believe that we could have a life together. But uh, we got married, and I had all these plans for the future. I saw us traveling uh, over the world and, and doing great ministry together, and I saw us having fabulous vacations and and all the things that never existed in my first marriage, I saw all these good things in our future. Six weeks after we got married, she got really sick. I mean, really sick. And uh, for two years, the doctors couldn't diagnose what it was. She'd just be walking across the house, and all of a sudden, she'd just faint and fall over and be unconscious. And she had absolutely no energy. She was just incredibly weak and sick. She went from 126 pounds to 84 pounds. You know, you know how little she is now? Take off another 30 pounds. She looked like she was going to die. And the effect of all this was that everything on the list disappeared except the first one. She wasn't able to fulfill any of those other four things. And this is like six weeks after we get married. I had all these dreams and all these hopes and all these desires. And just like that, they're gone. And she's coped with this illness for 17 years. Even to this day, it affects our life. So after about a year, year and a half, two years of, of, of living with this illness and the difficulty of it and the, and, and the loss, do you understand the loss? The loss of all the dreams and all the desires and all the hopes for this marriage. I was so angry. I was just furious. I was so mad at God. And one day I'm praying and I said, how I'd said this. I said, how could you do this to me? I said, you, you saw my suffering in that first marriage, you know how hard it was. And all I did was ask for the things that I believe you directed me to ask for. And now they're all gone. I said, how, how could you give her to me? And this is what he spoke to me. Clear as day, this thought came conversationally right back in my head. What makes you think I gave her to you? What if I gave you to her? No, it wasn't good. It wasn't good at all. It was, it was like, I, it was, oh my God. The depth of my selfishness in this marriage was revealed to me just like that. And it just about made me sick. And I said to him, I said, oh, God, what am I going to do? And this is what he spoke to me. It was so cool. There was no condemnation. There was not a trace of condemnation in it. It was purely conversational. He said, well, you could do it one of two ways. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, now that you've seen your selfishness, you could spread it out over the next 20 to 30 years, and you could have a mediocre marriage. Or you could face your selfishness right now. And start working on it 
right now and end up with a good marriage. What do you want to do? He, he didn't say this is what you should do. He, he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to face my selfishness right now. And that's when things started to change. Because I had to get straight what this marriage is about. And it's not fundamentally about me. And it's not fundamentally about you. There's something bigger. There's something bigger going on. Successful marriage illustrates the love of God to the world. Here's the second way in which marriage reveals the nature of God to the world. We're going to read some uh, scripture here, and this gets kind of deep, but I want you to, this becomes foundational to what we're going to do tomorrow, which is very practical. So really pay attention to this. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all of the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. All right, both men and women are created in the image of God, but were created differently according to gender, correct? Male, he created them. Female, he, cre he created them. But what this means is that the source of everything that is masculine and everything that is feminine exists in God, right? Okay. But God is without gender because he is the complete expression of both. Do you understand? God is not male or female. He's the complete expression of both. He is without gender. But when he created us, he divided his male characteristics and his female characteristics, his, the masculine and the feminine, were dispersed in people in a particular balance in each person. Because if each of us is made in the image of God, just follow the logic. If each of us is made in the image of God, it means that within us, each of us have masculinity and femininity in some balance. Does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm saying? So there is no perfectly masculine male and there is no perfectly feminine female because to be an accurate representation of God in his image, we have to have some of both, right? Okay. We exist, and I'm going to talk about this a little more tomorrow, but each of us exists in a continuum between masculinity, 100%, and femininity, 100%. We're somewhere along that continuum. Men tend to, tend to be more on the masculine side, women more on the feminine side. But within that continuum, there's a whole lot of room for difference in each individual where they sit on that balance and which feminine traits they tend to express most fully or which masculine traits. You understand? Just pretend. Yeah. 
pretend. Okay. What this means is that the best expression of the nature of God is found in the union of the masculine and feminine that exist and come together in marriage. Marriage is like bringing the masculine and the feminine together in a balance which illustrates God more fully than either one of them alone. Does that make sense? We're almost like reuniting parts of God back into a whole which now more fully expresses him to the world, not just in love, but also in all of his traits. So marriage is significant in that it, in terms of the masculine and the feminine, living together and functioning together and being in harmony together, when that's working, that too really expresses the nature of God. When the masculine and the feminine live together in selfless love, God is revealed to the world in a way that goes to the very deepest nature of God. Pretty cool. Let's go a little deeper in this verse. With the blessing of God in this verse comes a responsibility. Fill the earth and subdue it. Big job. The important thing to note here is that this command is given to who? Who gets this command? Both of them, jointly and equally. Right? Without well, a rock, a few people's world. There is no hint in this place, in this commission, in this delegation of spiritual authority, there is no hint here of spiritual hierarchy. There's no one above the other. They're given this task to do jointly. And that only makes sense because, look, if you're going to combine the masculine and the feminine to come together in unity and reflect the balance and the wholeness that is God, one can't be over the other. Because in God, one is not over the other. They're all part of Him. What this means is that understanding the essence of masculinity and the essence of femininity is very important because success in marriage depends on understanding the difference between the two and how these very different expressions of gender can function together in love. Most, <laughs> really, the problems in marriage are problems of gender. There's the selfishness issue which is going to exist no matter what. But even beyond the selfishness issue, even if you get over the selfishness issue, there's still the fact that you're living with someone who thinks differently than you do. I don't mean thinks differently like likes chocolate cake and you like white cake. I mean they process information differently. Their core reality is different. They have a different set of values as to what makes up the significance in the world it's almost like speaking two different languages. It's like being stuck with someone who, who speaks a different language and you keep thinking they speak your language and you keep trying to express yourself, but you find out they don't speak my language. And I don't understand them. And half the time I don't know what she's talking about. Really. 
Guys, would you just be honest for a minute? Of, the, of all the communication that takes place in your relationship with your girlfriend or in your relationship with your wife or even your sister or your boss who's a woman or somebody who's a friend who's, who's a member of the other sex, how often do you really say you understand them? Not that often. Unless it's questions like, what's for dinner? Where are my socks? These things have easy answers. But when you go beneath the surface and you start getting down to matters of the heart and perspective and values and how, they, how we process information and what makes up our world and what's significant, all of a sudden we find out, I'm not sure who this person is. And they're feeling the same thing. And these, diff these difficulties and differences are really matters of gender because we don't really understand what makes the other person tick. And if we can figure that out, we are going to go a long, long ways towards successful marriage. Not merely overcoming the selfishness issue, but really learning to understand and live together and enjoy someone whose perspective is so different that when they speak, you all of a sudden see the world in a new way. And you're thinking, I never would have thought that. Wow, that's a cool insight. Or you think, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. <laughs> but I'm committed to loving this person, so I have to try to make sense of it. It's bizarre. Did she, is that really possible that a person could think that? I'm really seriously. Have you ever thought that? How did he come up with that? Why? And I'm, why does that matter? Why does she care about that? These are gen, most of this is gender differences, and it's not that the person's crazy. Really, they're not. They're being true to who they are. They don't see it any other way. You have to explain your position very carefully before they even begin to understand it. But if we can understand some of these gender differences, all of a sudden our conversations are going to change. And we're going to relax. Oh, I know what she means. Oh, I get that. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, I see why she reacted that way. I never, never would have imagined it, but I, 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 can, I, can, I can understand that. That makes sense. I just want to say one more thing about this particular passage. In Genesis 2, 18 and 20, where the Lord says, I'm going to make a suitable helper for him. The Hebrew word that we translate as helper does not carry any connotation of subservience. Just want you to trust me on this. It doesn't. In fact, the word is most often used of God in his relationship with Israel. All of the other places where this particular word is used in the Old Testament, it's in the context, not all of them, but 80 plus percent, is used in the context of God being the helper of Israel. To think that God is in some way subservient or the servant of Israel is a complete misunderstanding of who God is and his role with Israel. Okay? So suitable helper there really doesn't mean someone that scurries around and does the laundry.
Just as an aside, and we're not going to go here in this conference, but I need to say this to you. Coming to know yourself and coming to accept who you are and coming to enjoy yourself in relationship with all of your friends, with your family, with your husband, with your wife, and with your God is going to depend on coming to understand where you are on the continuum between the masculine and the feminine and understanding this is how God made you and this is how he created you and it is good. Do you understand what I'm saying? Before I became a Christian, I was very, very hard-hearted and had almost no emotional life except anger. And I thought that was strength. Then I became a Christian. It was the strangest thing. I would be at church, and we would be singing some worship song, and all of a sudden I'd start to cry. Tears just running down my face. Not even sure why. What is this strange thing? Where did this come from? What is going on inside of me right now? I would watch Little House on the Prairie and cry. (laughs) I caught myself crying at Little House on the Prairie. I mean, my God, it's so stupid. It's It's like sucking on a sugar cube. And I'm getting all touched. I see some picture of a little puppy and I tear up. My question at that point is, God, what are you doing to me? All that was happening was a part that had been dormant, which was not allowed in my previous experience to come out or be expressed, but it was there by God's design. That part, in the safety and the security of his love and in relationship with him, was beginning to come out, and it took me by surprise. It really ambushed me but I discovered as it was going on it was the new part of me I liked best the discovery of that part has been a source of joy so wholeness and health has a lot to do with discovering what are these traits that he built into me that maybe I've been pushing down or culturally repressing or saying they're not appropriate or that's weakness It's never weakness if God designed it in. It's wholeness. And accepting that in your mate and accepting that in yourself and coming to understand this is really the way I'm wired and it's okay is essential to self-acceptance in the Christian sense of it and a sense of well-being. And listen, it's absolutely essential in parenting. There is nothing worse than trying to squeeze your child into a mold that is not made by God. That's just, I just throw that in, okay? Let's look really quickly and then we're done at the definition of masculine and feminine from the Bible. Because if all that is masculine and all that is feminine exists in God, then we should be able to find it in his word, and we should get a better understanding of what the essence of masculine and feminine is so we can start to to diagnose our relationships and what's going on and and, and what's working and what isn't working. If these are two poles of gender between which we find ourselves, what are the characteristics at each end of the continuum? 
What's the essence of masculinity? What's the essence of femininity? Do we see them in God? Okay, I'm going to suggest this to you and you can think about it. But as I look at this, I believe that the essence of masculinity is the initiation of action and the creative use of power. If you're going to bring about the kingdom of God and you're going to bring change to this world, initiating action and moving in power is absolutely essential because the kingdom which we fight against, the kingdom of darkness, is a powerful kingdom and we have to have something to counter it with. So in the very nature of God, there is this compulsion to action and the creative use of power. Here's the first example of it in the Bible is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And 1.3, and God said, let there be light and there was light. Listen, until he initiated... Until he became creative, until he used power, there was nothing. Do you understand? There was nothing. There was his personality, the Trinity, sitting there in themselves. Perfect. And then he had an idea. And his idea became reality. He thought about you and you came into existence. And the fact that he continues to think favorably about you is the only thing that's holding your atoms together. If he had a second thought about the wisdom of making you, you would cease to exist like that. If he doubted the, the wisdom of you, for even a moment, you're gone. It is his pure thought that brought everything into existence. Listen, if that's not an expression of power, what is? The supreme power is, I had an idea, there it is. Oh, look, it just happened. Initiation and the creative use of power. Action, making choices, bringing creative change to the world. The masculine seeks to will things to happen. It is decisive. Attack, conquer, exercise power. That's the ultimate masculine act. The essence of femininity, on the other hand, is response and relationship. The feminine nature of God is contained in this expression, Genesis 1-2. Now the earth was formless and empty. God had already spoken it into existence. Do you understand? In that act of creation and will, he had spoken all of this substance into existence, but it was without form. It had not been nurtured or organized or related to. It had simply been willed into existence. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This is so cool. That word hover, hovering over the waters, is only found in two places in the entire Bible. This passage of God brooding over creation. And here's the other passage it's used in. Deuteronomy 32.10 In a desert land he found him, in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and he cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. Like a mother hen has longed to gather her chicks under her wing. 
This is the feminine expression of God taking what has been willed into existence but has not been related to is it requires nurture it it it, it, it requires uh, change it it requires God entering into relationship with it and he does that and the imagery that's being used there is entirely a feminine imagery okay this is something we've got to Got to clarify. If God is both masculine and feminine, how come he tells us to call him father? How come it seems like most of the biblical images that we look at are of him initiating, him using power, him pursuing us? Why is that the case? Any ideas? Well, here's what I think. From the first moment of creation, his goal for us was to live with us in a nurturing relationship, which would have encompassed all of his masculine and all of his feminine all of the time. But we rebelled and we stepped away from him. And from that moment of stepping away, he began initiating the pursuit of us. He began to take action and use power to literally enter into the world himself to come and come after us to pursue us. The initiation was entirely on his behalf. The rest of the Bible is the story of him coming after us. That is, that is the masculine of God initiating, coming after, to save, to pursue to bring back. Once he enters into that relationship with us, all that nurture and all that love and all that is feminine begins to touch us and draw us into relationship and hold us. But a lot of the time, the story of the Bible is the story of the father coming after the lost children, the maleness, the initiation, the pursuit How is the church in the Bible described in what gender? It's always feminine. We are always characterized as feminine as between him and us because he's the one who initiates and we're the ones who have to respond. Here's something. This verse really nails it for me. Not that we first loved him, but that he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. He expressed his masculine nature as he pursues and comes after us to save us. And we express ourselves in the only way humanly possible we respond to him. That's why the imagery is so male. But that's not saying that's all there is to him. And that's not saying that's all there is to us. Okay. Let me end with this. An experiment was done some time ago, which really uh, illustrates the difference between masculinity and femininity. And this is in a way that we can all relate to. I just love this. Psychologists hid microphones all over a playground of preschool kids. All over. So they could cover and record every single noise made by all these children in hours of play. And they taped it all. 
and they analyzed it. The noises made by the boys were almost entirely composed of explosions, truck sounds, jet engines, and other nonverbal expressions of power. You can just see it, can't you? I mean, just as I said that, you can see those little guys out there doing exactly that, right? All right. The sounds made by the little girls were almost entirely relational. They were having tea parties. They were parenting little, little dolls. They were relating like neighbors to one another. They were making food. They were talking. They were doing relationship the whole time while little boys are blowing stuff up. We got to understand something. These are little kids that hadn't been educated on how they're supposed to be little boys or little girls. They're just doing who they are. And this is who they are. Isn't that cool? And we try to take guns away from little boys. <laughs> the truth is this. The truth is this. And we're going to explore it tomorrow in real detail as we look at gender and how they work together. But here's the truth. We really, de we really do see the world through different values and priorities. Men and women. We really do. This, this line that you're being fed today through the feminist movement, political correctness, that we're essentially the same, is a crock. It is a lie. It is foolishness. And these fundamental differences in values and priorities how we process information, how we reach conclusions, what are our core values, what's our definition of reality. These problems are what make communication the number one problem area in marriage. Because not only do we see the world through different values, priorities, and methods, these differences mean we communicate differently. So much so that much of the time we might as well be speaking different languages. So tomorrow, that's what we're going to look at, are those differences and uh, how we can understand one another better. We're done. We'll take a short break, and then Shell's going to come, and she's going to talk to you. So if you've got any questions, those pieces of paper are sitting in your tables, and we're going to have a panel tomorrow after, uh, at, near the end of the uh, seminar, and we're going to have... Um, Bob and Claudia and John and Hope and Shelley and I, and we're going to take questions and have a panel discussion. So if you've got things percolating in your head out of any of our sessions or anything that really matters that you want addressed, write it down there and see to it that we have it uh, by the end. Of, you can bring them right there, right there. Yeah, yeah. Shelley just reminded me. It's great that um, some singles have come to this thing. Because you're doing the smart and responsible thing. You're figuring this out ahead of the commitment and not afterwards when it gets even more difficult. So we're really, really glad that you're here and we're proud of you for coming. And you stick down your questions as well too. Okay? All right. Should we take like about a five-minute break? Great. And then Shell's going to take over. Great. All right.